You're listening to the Real Estate Investing Podcast with Dante Belmonte, here to help you start or continue your journey in real estate. Each episode, we bring you a different expert real estate investor who will share the secrets to their success so you can learn and benefit from their experience. Let's jump right into it. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. Today's guest is Lauren Spidell. She's the regional manager at Exeter 1031 Exchange, and that's exactly what we're talking about today. We're gonna to be talking about 1031 exchanges. Lauren, she does phenomenal with these questions I throw at her about 1031 Exchange and how it can benefit real estate investors with trading up and looking to go bigger and bigger with their assets always. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome back to the Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte. Today with us, we have Lauren Spidell. Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, my name is Lauren Spidel, and I am the regional manager for Exeter 1031 Exchange Services. We are a nationwide qualified intermediary. So we handle all different types of 1031 exchange transactions, uh, forward, reverse, improvement, including foreign property. Uh, and then we are one of the very few qualified intermediaries that actually has government oversight. Um, so yeah, that's what awesome. we do. So we're going to jump into all that today. And everyone that's listening, we're talking about 1031 exchanges. So Lauren is a 1031 exchange expert. So that's why we uh, wander on the show. And uh, this is something that a lot of people don't talk too much about. If you read real estate books, uh, tax books, loophole books, or any investment books, podcasts, websites, you're going to see the word, you know, 1031 exchange on there in some form. And uh, so we're going to get into that. So what I really want to start with for today's show is capital gains and why you'd want to use a 1031 exchange. So what, what is happening when you are selling a property or moving up that this would benefit you? Great question. Um, so a lot of people don't know that when they sell an investment property, you don't have some sort of exclusion on tax like you do with your primary residence. When you sell primary residence, you have an exclusion on that gain, which is a huge benefit of owning a primary residence. Uh, but when you own an investment property, a lot of people don't realize that there are pretty significant tax uh, ramifications from a sale of property. Uh, usually clients are going to see anywhere between 15 to 20 percent in capital gains tax. Then you have state tax, a possibly Medicare surcharge, which is at 3.8 percent, and that's usually when your income's above a certain level and taking proceeds from a sale could kick you above that mark. And the biggest is depreciation recapture at 25%. Mm, yeah. um, so it usually, from what we've seen, is somewhere between 30 to 40% going to the IRS off of the gain that the client has. So it's a pretty significant amount. And with a 1031, you're deferring all of that tax liability. So, you know, instead of, let's say you have a property where you net, I don't know, 250 uh, because you paid $50,000 in tax, now you're going and buying another property for 250. Instead, you could defer that tax and buy, for example, a $300,000 property. So it allows you to build your wealth through real estate at a much quicker pace than not doing an exchange. Right. So something I want to break down real quick that you started out with that you were, we were talking about uh, capital gains at a 15 to 20% roughly. Talk to us real quick about short-term versus long-term capital gains and how that affects you know, the cost basis of a property and, and where that comes in. Because a lot of people... Uh, especially flippers. I know this doesn't really work for flippers because I don't believe you could do a 1031 exchange with a flip. Um, 
but talk to us about capital gains and how people don't really calculate or put that into their equation when looking at an investment property. Yeah, first of all, I'm really impressed because most of the time when I talk to people about 1031 exchanges, they have no idea that uh, fix and flips don't qualify for exchange treatment, um, really because your intent is not to hold the asset, your intent right. is to sell it with a fix and flip. So um, when you have a property that you're, you're holding for under a year, any gain is short term and short term is going to be at a much larger percentage than your right? capital yeah, normal, normal income rates. Um, so when you are um, looking at long-term capital gains, uh, that's something that you've held for longer than a year. So then your capital gains is only, the highest is at 20%. So there's definitely a, a big difference. Um, the longer you hold it, usually the larger your gain is as well. Um, but it really should be used for someone who has the intent to hold the asset um, so usually short-term gain doesn't come into play with exchanges. There are always situations where there could be an exception. And I say that because, um, you know, your intent is to, should be to hold, but, you know, intent can change and there can be certain, there can be very valid reasons why your intent may change. Um, the IRS, you know, there's nothing within section 1031 that states that you have to hold the asset for any specific amount of time. Most experts will recommend something, you know, between 12 to 24 months. But, you know, let's say you bought an investment property and you lost your job. And now the investment property, um, you know, maybe it would cost less for you to live there than your current home. And so, you know, you decide to sell your current home and move into your investment property for financial reasons. That's a valid reason why your intent may change. Right. You have to show that to the government. And Something you said that I, the longer you hold a property, typically your gain on the property increases. And I, I just want to justify for two reasons. One, appreciation in the property being that you keep up with the property, CapEx maintenance, and you keep rents in order to raise with uh, appreciation. And two, I mean, every year that you're deducting the home at the cost basis that you bought it off of that depreciation recapture. So you're depreciating the home that's adding up too. And we'll get, I'll let you get into that in a little bit as we go down. Um, so and something else you said, 1031 exchange section 1031, cause it's section 1031 in the, uh, the tax code for people that are wondering where that comes right. from. So <laughs> talk to us a bit about the timeline. So for those again, sure. that don't know about the 1031 exchange, I'll let you do all the talking, but real quick, there's a timeline that goes with this. You don't have infinite amount of time to do this transaction change of a like asset. So Lauren, take it away with that. Yes. Uh, so you actually have a total of 180 calendar days. Uh, that clock starts usually the day after closing. So if your closing was today, tomorrow would start the first day of your exchange period. Keep in mind that these dates are all calendar dates. So the first uh, kind of deadline date is your identification period. So if the closing was today, tomorrow would start the first day of your exchange period and the first day of your identification period. Your identification period is 45 calendar days. So the qualified intermediary will give the client an identification form where they need to identify possible replacement properties, and that form needs to be returned to the qualified intermediary by 11.59, whatever time zone that taxpayer is located in, by the 45th day. Uh, during the 45 days, you can change your mind as many times as you want on identifying 
but after the 45th day, you can't amend that form again. So you should really have a good idea of what you possibly may want to purchase. So and just then to after clarify, the 40- on that list that you're, you're making in 45 days, after that 45 days, a property that you have to purchase has to be on that list, correct? And correct. And is there yes. a minimum of properties that have to be on that list? Uh, there is. So there are some identification rules that you have to follow. Okay. Um, when you identify, um, the most common is the three property rule. And it means that you can identify three possible replacements regardless of value. Uh, that is, again, the most common. I would say 90% of our clients use that technique to identify. Okay. And the next rule is the 200% of fair market value rule. So if you sell an asset, let's say for 500000 it means that you can identify double what you sold for. So you can identify a million dollars worth of real estate. When you're using that rule to identify, and you have to pick one, uh, when you're using that rule, you can't exceed that million dollars. So you have to give a value to every property that you're identifying, and you can't go above 200,000% of what you sold for. So it can really the, only the be double third, the value of what you sold for, correct? Okay. Right. So, you know, if, if the asset is, isn't on the high side, it's on the lower side, then maybe the three property rule would allow you to identify more assets, more properties um, than the 200% rule. This is something that the qualified intermediary really should work with the taxpayer, you know, to, right. to make sure they understand the rules and that they're doing it right and that they're reviewing that identification form. Um, the, then the third is actually called the 95% exception. So it's technically not a rule, but it states that you can identify as many properties as you want, but you must close on 95% of what you've identified. So if you identify 10 properties, you have to be prepared for 10 closings. Wow. Hence why it's rarely used. It's just, it, it's one thing if you are closing on all of those properties within a short time period, maybe within your 45 days, then you know you've used all of your exchange funds and you can then identify under the 95% rule because you know exactly what you purchased. Okay, um, so but it, l- let's just say you have a property for $500,000 that you sold and you identify 10 mm-hmm. properties that are each 100,000, so that's a total yes. of a million dollars of real estate. So you'd be able to sell that property for 500,000 and put it into and buy those 10 different properties at 100,000, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Awesome. The number of properties doesn't matter. Um, it's just the total you, dollar amount. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. With a 95% exception, again, you have to pick one, either the three property rule, the 200% of fair market value rule, or the 95% exception when you're identifying. So it depends on okay. how you've identified to make sure that you still have a valid exchange. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Oh, and then <laughs> I meant to say, after, <laughs> after the 45 calendar days, you have another 135 calendar days to close on something that you've identified. So it's a total of 180 calendar days from the sale of your property to when you actually need to execute and purchase your replacement. Um, and that's key because calendar days could be holidays, it could be weekends. So you have to kind of keep, you know, keep that in mind. Um, when you're identifying, first of all, and of course, making sure that you close by a certain date. Right. That's just a, a 1031 exchange is a lot, but it does benefit you where you're deferring those taxes. So let, let's look at a real world scenario. Let's say someone did have some properties they wanted to sell and they wanted to, uh, can I switch up their portfolio a little bit so they're not paying those gains or that uh, depreciation up front? 
besides that, I mean, what would be the benefit for it? Like, give me a real world example of someone that you've possibly worked with or, uh, you know, someone that you're currently working with that has done one and how it's benefited them. Yeah, I mean, I would say there's so many ways that a 1031 exchange can benefit an investor. Um, one of them is, you know, you're looking to sell your, your portfolio and maybe you don't have the funds to pay the tax. Um, you know, maybe you're highly leveraged on your asset all because you're only getting, let's say $50,000 in equity doesn't mean that your, you know, your tax isn't going to exceed that. Um, so have first, first of all, I should say having a good CPA or tax advisor is extremely important when you're doing a 1031 exchange because as a qualified intermediary, we can't provide tax advice or legal advice. Um, so the only thing we're focused on here is making sure that our clients are having an successful 1031. But, you know, there are numbers that clients need to know whether, you know, to determine whether it makes sense for them to do an exchange. Um, you know, they need to know what their adjusted cost basis is. They need to know what their net proceeds are. Um, all of that is really important. And then you have to decide, you know, along with your CPA, what's my tax liability and does it financially make sense for me to do an exchange? That's kind of key. Um, but what I've really seen uh, where this has been beneficial for my clients is when they're in the growth status or the growth stage of real estate investing because they are you know, buying more property, they are trading up in value, um, you know, maybe they're selling an asset and they want to buy two now or you know, they're selling a duplex and they want to buy a, a fourplex. Um, it's a great way to have your full net sales proceeds working for you in another asset or multiple assets. You also can right. use it to, to change the sector you're in. You can change geographically where your properties are located. Um, and it, all along the way, you're deferring that tax liability. So you're able to have more money to reinvest into that portfolio. Right. Okay. So it has to be, uh, some people call it 1031 exchange, like kind exchange. That word like kind, define that for us. What does like kind mean and, and how does that work with the rules of a 1031 exchange? Yeah. Like kind is very general, um, but it's also very specific. So what I mean by that is um, like kind for real property means that when you're selling a piece of real property, you need to buy another piece of real property. So what falls under that is going to be, you know, a single family home, uh, apartment complex, commercial, industrial storage, oil and gas interests, uh, air and water rights. Um, there's also syndicated tenant in common property interests, uh, as well as Delaware statutory trusts. Those are all considered like kind because you're actually owning real estate. Um, what I think is more important is that intent piece. That intent piece is really critical. You should have the intent to hold it for rental income, appreciation, or use in a trade or a business. Um, so that's, I think that's more critical than the type of asset. But vacant land falls underneath that as well. I, didn't, I don't think I listed that. Um, and I think a lot of people get confused about like kind because they think, oh, I'm selling a multifamily. I need to buy a multifamily. And that's okay. just not accurate. Yeah. So I want to, I'm just going to stop you right there. So that's huge. I bet you a lot of people don't think of it that way. Like you said, like asset multifamily to multifamily. Let's say you do have a fourplex or something and you want to sell that, but you want to buy raw land at the equal or greater value to build an apartment mm -hmm. complex on. 
that's a great way to trade up if you want to Mm-hmm. Uh, basically defer your, your taxes that that's a huge way so again for those of you that are listening if you have a smaller property and you're just you, you want to know how to move up but you don't have the funds to pay those taxes to move up this is this is the way to do it for you I mean this is black and white how you're gonna do it and this is how a, a smaller guy can get in the game with a bigger guy and keep deferring those taxes so speaking of a smaller guy let's say we have a single member LLC that a property's in. Uh, a property is owned mm-hmm. in as a single member LLC and they want to buy a like kind asset, but in their name, can they do that? And how does it work with a multiple member LLC into another property, into a different name? What is the actual ownership of the property have to be? And I knew I just threw a lot at you. <laughs> that's okay. Um, that, and that's a great question because it comes up a lot. Um, one of the requirements when you're doing an exchange is that the same tax paying entity that sells the relinquished property, the relinquished property is um, the property you're selling. It must be the same tax paying entity that buys the replacement property. And that's the property that you're purchasing, of course. Um, and that's because the t- tax paying entity that is selling is the one that's engaging in the exchange. So to complete the exchange, they need to buy that replacement property. Uh, a single member LLC, if it is a disregarded entity, Um, that means that it is disregarded for tax purposes, uh, then that is one of the same with yourself. So you could sell that property in the single member LLC if it's a disregarded entity and buy in your name without an issue. Um, With a disregarded entity, single member LLC, the um, property is going to actually be filed on your personal tax return. So that's what's gonna be key. If it's filed on your personal tax return, then you can buy that replacement property in your name. Okay. Um, if you have a multiple member partnership, let's say, um, there's no way that that's disregarded. It's usually a K-1 statement that um, the, those interest, those shareholders or membership interest holders are receiving. Um, that partnership has to be the one to do the 1031 exchange. So it has to buy the replacement property. Okay. Um, there are possibly ways to structure uh, things a little bit differently. Let's say there's a couple members that want to leave the partnership. You know, maybe they want to pay their tax and be done with it. At that point, we can discuss a redemption agreement um, to redeem them out of the partnership for real property before the sale. And these are really things that should be discussed with the qualified intermediary, first of all, to make sure that they um, understand the structure, that they can give you the right advice. Um, And then also, of course, engage your CPA in the conversation as well to make sure that you get their blessing because they're usually the one that's filing the tax return and they're filing the 8824. Um, But the same tax paying entity that sells must be the same tax paying entity that buys. Okay, and to talk about the qualified intermediaries for a second. So let's say Billy Bob Joe has a duplex that he wants to sell and he sells it and he takes the proceeds from that and puts it in his checking account. And he says, all right, I'm going to do a 1031 exchange. And what did he do wrong there? Yeah. Well, he didn't hire a qualified intermediary before the sale. That's, <laughs> yep. that's the first thing. Yep. Um, you know, I mentioned before Exeter is available 24 seven. And one of the big reasons is because these calendar days, they end up on weekends, they end up on holidays. You know, if you're on your 45th calendar day and you need to make sure you identified correctly, you want to make sure your QI is going to pick up the phone. Um, 
and this is this is where these calls come in. Um, they come in typically in the evenings or on the weekends where somebody says, oh, I just closed. I'm holding the check in my hand and I want to do an exchange. Um, number one, you, you need to hire a qualified intermediary before the sale. We need to be assigned into the contract. We need to coordinate the exchange with the closing agent. We also need to take the proceeds. If the client takes uh, re constructive receipts or receipt of the proceeds, they disqualify the ability to continue and to do the exchange. Um, I had a phone call once with someone who said, well, my title agent asked me a closing if I was doing an exchange. And I said, no, but I do want to do one. And she said, okay, you can set it up after the closing and not realizing that that's not how it works. Um, so he was not happy. <laughs> that was for well, sure. I, uh, let's say uh, I trust my uncle a lot. You know, he's a really good guy. So I'm just going to give him the funds after closing. Why can't he just be my qualified intermediary? Yeah, I would not advise that. Um, I would definitely <laughs> make sure that the organization that you hire has expertise and experience to assist you. Um, anyone can be a qualified intermediary. So in theory, you know, you could have your neighbor down the street be your QI, but is that neighbor going to be able to make sure that you are following all the rules and requirements? Are they going to, you know, prepare the exchange documents before closing and coordinate that with the closing agent? You know, there's a lot of other steps. Um, and, and, you know, really qualified intermediaries, when you look at the cost of a sale, they can range in price from anywhere from 500 to $2,500. So the, the um, you know, there's definitely a broad, a broad, um, price when you when you're interviewing QIs. Right. I certainly wouldn't go go with the cheapest. I think you in some circumstances you pay for what you get. Yep. Um, but I also wouldn't necessarily state that the most expensive is the best route either. Right. Um, what you should be looking for when you're hiring a QI again that they have the experience, they have the expertise, they have insurance, they've got bonding especially right now with, um, you know, currently what's going on in, in the economy that they have, you know, capital reserves to make it through, a, you know, a few tough months, possibly a, a few tough years, not really sure. Um, and I think holding your funds in qualified, a qualified trust account or a qualified escrow account is important. Um, if your QI files for bankruptcy in the middle of your exchange, you want to make sure your funds are protected. Right. And having it in those those types of accounts, those types of accounts cannot be brought into bankruptcy proceedings, which is important. They are earmarked specifically as your 1031 exchange funds. Uh, and then also having government oversight. Um, you know, we've gone through two or three years of the regulatory process to be regulated, audited, and licensed by the Division of Banking. Um, so every 18 months we go through an audit, and that's just an extra safeguard that we've kind of gone one step further to provide for our clients. Right. Now, something I want to touch on real quick, and for people that really don't understand the whole 1031 exchange or just getting introduced to it, this doesn't make your taxes magically disappear, go poof, they don't go away. Clue word is deferred here. So they get pushed back, they get pushed back. I mean, you can do a 10, correct me if I'm wrong, but you can do a 1031 exchange as many times as you'd like, correct? Okay. Correct. So you can continue yes. to defer and push those taxes and that depreciation down the line. Let's say we do six 1031 exchanges and on the seventh one, we just sell it and go buy another property and don't do an exchange. What happens to all that deferment then? Yeah, great question. Um, I think it's important to note that the biggest benefit of the 1031 exchange is the estate planning tool behind it. You know, as you, as you trade up or as you build your portfolio, 
eventually when you pass away, your beneficiaries are going to receive a step up in basis. So you would have an appraiser come out. Yeah, an appraiser will come out. They'll value that portfolio or they'll value that property. Let's say the property is a million dollars. If they sell it for a million, they have no tax liability. So it's a wonderful estate planning tool. Um, Eventually, and I I think this is really important, um, eventually if you have done a number of exchanges, your your gain never really disappears. Your tax liability never goes away, unless you die, of course. (laughs) But, um, you know, as you've built your wealth through real estate, um, you'll be responsible for, for that tax liability if you eventually sell and do not pay the tax. Um, so it can, it can be significant. Hopefully by that stage in your life, maybe you're in a lower tax bracket. Maybe that might help. Um, I think it's important to note that there was a 30-year study done that showed that 88% of people who do 1031 exchanges eventually sell and pay the tax. And wow. that's important because there are other options. Um, you know, I come across, let's say just recently, a, a farmer who was selling his land and he said, you know, my kids, they don't want to farm anymore. They're off in the big city and they're not in this, you know, in, in this um, realm. So I want to sell. And we actually talked to him about a Delaware statutory trust, which, awesome. um, you know, the the Delaware Statutory Trust is a great option for someone who wants to be a passive investor, just wants to get monthly income. Someone else is basically doing the work for you. You're investing into a portfolio of real estate, um, and it can continually defer that tax for them, but also allow them to sell that asset. So there are, there are possibly other options for clients, and these are the conversations they should have with their trusted advisors and possibly their, their qualified intermediary. Yeah. So those of you guys that are listening, I just want to, I hope your mind's blown at how many different aspects and how many different routes you can go with real estate investing and building your wealth passively or actively through real estate. I mean, I feel like we really just scratched the surface here, to, you know, so far because there's so much and there's, so, it's just the silver lining of it. The tax law and 1031 exchange, there's so much to it. And that's why someone like you is very important to have on an investor's team, especially if you plan on doing multiple properties and possibly moving around your assets a little bit. You, you are a very, Lauren, you're a very important aspect to someone's team. Now, just to I do another example, let's say uh, until I'm 80 years old, I own real estate and I've done 1031 exchanges throughout my life and I have three kids. And mm-hmm. I leave that after all those 1031 exchanges, I have one property that have, I've, ste- I've stepped up into from all of my smaller properties. I've moved up, I've traded up. And I pass away, I leave that property to my children and my children just say, Hey, we don't want to do this. This isn't our thing. We don't want anything to do with real estate. That step up basis is going to let them sell that property and they'll have a clean slate. They won't have to pay my capital gains, my uh, depreciation recapture over the years. Is that correct? That's correct. So when you pass away, your tax liability goes with you when you pass. Right. Um, so, you know, one thing to keep in mind, if you were to, if somebody were to gift you, say, you know, your parent were to gift you that property, um, that they're also gifting you their cost basis. Right. So it's if, important if they're alive, right? that, right. Yep. Yep. It's one thing when you inherit it, it's another thing when you've been gifted the property. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's crazy to think about. I know it sounds kind of dark, but when you die, you know, it, it's a strategy for investment. You get to take all of that with you and your family, your loved right. ones, they're taken care of and you're not leaving them with a giant burden or a giant bill where if they do sell that, let's say it's a million dollar property, they don't have to pay $500,000 in taxes and 
depreciation recapture. I mean, that's crazy. So it's such a, a, a strong way to take care of that tax basis and uh, keep, keep the money, I guess you could say, in the family running through it for years and years. Yeah. Um, do you have anything Absolutely. that you want to touch on 1031 exchange, anything you've written down or anything that you wanted to come to the table that you want to chat a little bit about? Cause I know there's so much of it and I'm not totally familiar with all of it. <laughs> I think a big, you know, like the reinvestment requirement is definitely something that, um, you know, people should know about because I think it's often misunderstood and it's often misunderstood by, um, professionals in the industry. So, Realtors, brokers, CPAs, um, you know, they have questions about the reinvestment requirement. Um, so it's important to note that to have a fully tax-deferred exchange, you need to reinvest your uh, net sales price. And a lot of people think the net sales price is going to be the, the fair market value, so the gross sales price, the price agreed upon between the buyer and the seller, minus debt and minus routine closing costs, except it's not minus debt. So if you were to sell an asset, let's say for a million dollars, and you can deduct routine closing costs like broker's commission, title insurance, real estate attorney fees, uh, CPA fees that are related to the transaction, um, let's say you end up netting at that point 900000 And let's say you've got a $400,000 mortgage on that. The title agent is going to pay that mortgage off the $500,000 will come to us as the qualified intermediary. But your goal as the exchanger is to buy a property worth $900,000 or more in value. So reinvesting all of your equity and reinvesting your debt value as well. Um, you could offset that debt value with cash. So let's say, you know, by doesn't happen very often, but let's say you decide you want to bring $400,000 of um, out-of-pocket cash to the closing instead of taking out another mortgage for 400 That's perfectly fine. You can do that. Um, but any cash that you don't reinvest, any cash that you take at closing, that's taxable. Um, and any debt that you don't reinvest is also taxable. Um, okay. So that is definitely key to having that fully tax-deferred exchange. Uh, we have clients all the time that say, well, I want to take out 50000 at closing, you know, can I do that? You can. The 50000 will have tax liability. And it's extremely important that you do check with your CPA to make sure that it still makes sense to do the exchange. Right. Okay. Now, does a vacation home qualify for the 1031 exchange? Great question. Uh, second homes and vacation homes can qualify. But in order to kind of fall into the safe harbor guidelines, you need to own that property for at least two years, um, I'm sorry, rent it out for at least two years, 14 days out of each year, and you have to limit your use. So you can only use it for 14 days or 10% of days rented, whichever is greater. So if you wow. currently own a vacation home, it's going to take some proper planning, especially if, you know, all summer long you're there with the kids, um, you know, and you're thinking about selling it. Having that discussion, you know, upfront and knowing that, okay, I need to now restrict my use for the next couple of years and I need to rent it out for at least 14 days out of the next two years. Now it qualifies for exchange treatment. I can buy another vacation property. And again, the same thing. The first two years are going to be critical. You should rent it out and limit your use. Okay. So after those two years, is it kind of free reign that you can do whatever you'd like or do you still have to follow guidelines? You don't have to follow guidelines. Um, I would say that that's probably the safest because that 
that structure is usually going to fall, it's going to be reported on two tax returns. So that's going to assist you in case you're audited, you want to be able to prove that you had to, the intent to have that asset as an investment and limiting your personal use is going to be key. I mean, th this right here just goes to show, I mean, why uh, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad says why the rich are getting richer is because they use things like this. It's not cheating. It's not taking advantage of the system. It's written in the tax code for them to use. I mean, they're using a vacation home and they're utilizing the laws and the regulations properly to increase their wealth and their riches and not pay taxes like a regular w, W2 worker is. So I think it's, it's so important. And this just goes to show what you're talking about just goes to show, you know, how someone can take advantage of those. And I know I, I just sound like I'm rambling going on, but I can't stress enough how important, you know, something like this is and planning for it, not just winging it. <laughs> now, yeah, absolutely. Can, let's say I have a property, uh, a two family that I'm selling and I want to do a 1031 exchange out of it. Can I make an offer on a property and sign a contract before my property is sold? Yes. Yes, okay. you can. So I can. Um, you can. You can sign contracts. The, the big thing is you don't want to close okay. without hiring that QI and getting them involved. Um, that kind of brings up actually um, the reverse 1031 exchange. Um, let's say you find a replacement property. You absolutely love it. You say, this is it, but I haven't sold my other property yet. Um, what do I do? Um, and timeframes tend to really... I would say that's one of the biggest concerns when I talk to clients is, you know, am I going to be able to identify within 45 days? Am I going to be able to close? So a lot of these things come up. With a reverse 1031 exchange, um, it's certainly a tool that a taxpayer can use. It is going to be a more expensive transaction because there's a lot more moving parts. So your gain has to be worth it to engage in this type of exchange. But with a reverse exchange, typically the qualified intermediary will purchase the replacement property on your behalf. They will park title to it because you can't own both assets at the same time. So they're going to park title to it. The taxpayer then has to identify within their 45 calendar days what they're selling. And then they have another 135 days to get it sold. Um, at that point, then once it's sold, the property is then transferred to that taxpayer. So they now own that property. Um, if they're not able to sell their current property, then at the 181st day, the property is still given to the taxpayer, and now they have two properties. That would be the risk associated with it. Um, but it can certainly be a solution for someone who's worried about the timeframes. The biggest hurdle with a reverse exchange is the financing or the funds. You haven't sold your relinquished property yet, so how do you purchase your replacement without those funds? Um, usually with a reverse exchange, an LLC is created um, and the exchange accommodated, uh, excuse me, exchange accommodator title holder is kind of brought into play. That's kind of an arm of our business. Um, and a lot of banks, especially larger banks uh, that don't service their own loans, don't understand the structure. They don't understand that we're merely the title holder for this transaction. We're not being underwritten. Um, you know, you, the exchanger is. Um, so if you have out-of-pocket funds to buy the replacement, that is going to be much easier of a reverse transaction, but um, know that it can be done in case, you know, someone falls into that situation. Right, right. Okay, awesome. Now, 
Here, here's a fun question for you, and I bet you don't get asked this too often. Can I exchange a foreign property for a domestic property or vice versa for a 1031 exchange to be valid? Great question. And the answer is no, that is not like kind. Um, but you can do a foreign property exchange. So we are one of five companies in the United States that do foreign property exchanges. But when you're talking about like kind, foreign property is like kind to other foreign property. So you could okay. be selling in Australia and be buying in Mexico. You know, you could be selling in Mexico and be buying in Canada. Um, every location, every, you know, foreign country may have different rules on how they handle their closings. So that would be important for us to learn to make sure that we can still execute uh, the 1031 exchange because no other country has something like this in their tax code. Um, so it would be if someone has U.S. tax liability by selling that asset. But okay. um, yep, yep. Okay, awesome. You're, you're doing awesome. Let me tell you, this, this is a lot of stuff I'm throwing at you. You're doing great. <laughs> so another one is, let's say I have uh, a property I have a lot of equity in. Um, mm -hmm. You know, just what what I own it versus you know what it's worth, and I'm, I plan on doing a 1031 exchange. But let's say I refinance that property to pull out all that equity tax free. Can I do that? Can I do a refinance prior to an exchange in order to pay off other loans or use that capital for other projects? Is that allowed? Great question. Um, so usually we would recommend that when you are doing a cash out refinance, um, that you give yourself some time before you sell and do a subsequent exchange. Um, we would recommend giving yourself about six months. Um, that way you can at least season that refinance and the reason is because if you were to do a refinance right before the sale and subsequent exchange mm -hmm. under audit, the auditor could say, you know what, listen, you, you could have taken this money out at closing, but you didn't. You took it out through the cash out refinance because you knew that if you took it out of closing, you would have tax liability. So right. that's the risk associated with doing a cash out refinance so close to the sale. Um, I have also heard that if there is a business purpose, the, the actual code states, if there's you know, a valid business purpose to do this cash out refinance, um, that might give you some argument uh, if you are audited. I would definitely make sure that you discuss that with your CPA because I have gotten a range of answers from different CPAs. Right. Um, some have said, no, you need a year. You need two years. Um, like a some have said, period. right. You know, some have said, you know, you need six months. We would, we would say six months. Um, one option, if, if you're concerned about that, um, could be that you buy the replacement property. So you're reinvesting all of that equity. You wait about two to three months, you season that, and then you do a cash out refinance on your newly purchased property. Um, and, you know, a lot, a lot of pushback I get from clients or the comment I get from clients more than any other comment when it comes to that suggestion would be, well, there's a cost to that cash out refinance after I purchase this property. There is, but it's usually going to be less than the tax liability of taking it out um, at closing or possibly being audited and going through an audit and hiring a tax attorney to assist you right. and you know, possibly being forced to pay that tax liability on that cash out. So just to kind of reiterate what you said there, Instead of doing a cash out refinance to pull out all that tax-free equity before an exchange, wait till the exchange is done so you're safe and you can do the cash out refinance and use that money tax-free as you, you need to. Okay. And would you yeah, say- I would, I would, Go ahead. 
I was gonna say I would season it for about two to three months, but then yes. Yeah, right, not okay right then. away. So that seems as if your intentions, whatnot. Now, right. do you guys ever suggest to a client that, hey, in a year I plan doing a 1031 exchange on this property, I have a lot of equity. I'm gonna do a cash out refinance now so I have that money in my pocket. Do you guys ever suggest that? Or I'm sure that comes up every once in a while, but I'm sure it's not on every single 1031 exchange. Again, this is me just right. nitpicking at the tax code and seeing how you can benefit from it. Yeah, I mean, if somebody brings that as a valid concern, that's definitely something that we discuss. Um, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, one of the things when we, when we talk to our clients is we want to know what are your goals? Um, you know, what are you looking for here? I would say be as honest with your qualified intermediary as possible because they can at least help guide you to make sure that you're following the rules and requirements for a successful exchange even if you don't fit directly into a perfect 1031, they can at least tell you, listen, this is going to be a little bit risky, or, you know, maybe it won't be a little bit risky, but you don't know if you don't ask. Um, so again, you know, I, I kind of try to tell my clients, you know, what are your goals? What are you looking to accomplish here? Um, and then from there, hopefully your QI will have some suggestions for you. Um, but you know, if somebody says, hey, I've got a lot of equity, I'd like to pull some of it out. I'm probably not going to sell it for a year. I think you're in a good, you know, a good time frame to do an exchange. But we always say, check with your CPA. Awesome. No, that's great. Lauren, you, uh, you're just filled with knowledge. God bless you for learning all this. Because I know, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's books on 1031 Exchange just to go over and explain all the different methods and uh, the advances to use with it. So, you, uh, you've done a phenomenal job this evening. Is there anything else before we sign off here that you'd like to touch on? Just tell us a little bit about anything I missed. No, I think you've really covered a lot of it, um, which I think is great because a lot of times we get phone calls saying, I have no idea what I'm calling for. My CPA said <laughs> that I should call you. So, um, you know, I think, again, we would love to be a part of, you know, the group of advisors that, you know, your investors are working with, um, if anything, just an arm to assist. Um, a QI really shouldn't be, they shouldn't be charging you for consultation. They shouldn't be charging you for, um, you know, just chatting about certain structures and trying to learn more. Um, so I, I definitely recommend connecting with one and, you know, getting that relationship up and going because they can work right alongside your CPA, right alongside your attorney to make sure that you're really using what you've built, um, with, you know, everything that you have. So a 1031 exchange can be a wonderful strategy. Yes, I agree. Now, Lauren, where can someone connect with you if they want to follow you, if they want to get in contact with you, a consultation, or they actually want to use you as their, uh, qualified intermediary for this? Yeah. Um, the best thing to do would be to call me. Uh, my direct line is 630-828-5200. Um, we also have a wonderful website, exeter1031.com. You can find all of our contact information on there. You can also email me at lspidel at exeterco.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also on Facebook. Feel free to reach out. Awesome. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for spending the time this evening to go over all that with us. I think we jam-packed a lot in that about 40, 45 minutes that we discussed all the uh, 1031 Exchange. Thank you, Dante. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We hope you took something away from today's episode. For more information, you can find us on Instagram at Dante Belmonte. See you next time.